It's really gladiatorial because generally speaking, you are in the middle of this pit. You're lower than everybody else that's sitting around you. And, and the CEO sits in one space. So you generally eyeball him. And, and yet you kind of know that you have people piercing into your side all the time because they want your job or they are competing for the next job. And so that's where it really becomes a sort of a, a vicious circle where you're being pronged and prodded to look at the validity of your idea, your concept. What have you thought about this? Well, why do you say that? And how is this going to solve this? And you're on your feet and you have to have thought about all this because if you haven't, it shows up. Helping CEOs and business leaders discover the energy to perform exceptional brilliance and positively impact the lives of those around them. Be inspired by world leaders, game-changing influencers, and next-level gurus. This is the Active CEO Podcast, where the ordinary don't belong. And now your host, CEO and founder of Energy to Perform, international speaker and leadership performance coach, Craig Johns. On this episode of the Active CEO Podcast, I speak with an expert on leadership, brand, and digital strategy with a specialization in digital transformation. He's a top 100 digital marketing influencer and the author of four incredible books, including the recently launched You Lead. He has a BA Literature and Philosophy from Colgate University a BA Literature from Yale University, and an MBA Marketing from INSEAD. His career has included Vice President of Donaldson, Lufkins & Generat, 16 years in global managerial roles at L'Oreal, General Manager Worldwide for Redken, and VP Associate at NetExplo. As an entrepreneur, he has founded the Mindset, Podcast Festival Events, and My Dial. I'm honored and privileged to introduce you to a storyteller, consultant, board member at Scientific Brain Training, and former board member at lastminute.com, and host of the Minter Dialogue podcast. Minter Dial. Uh, Minter, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Craig. It's funny to hear yourself spread out and talked about like that. <laughs> Beautiful. And, and look, you know, you've, you've spent a lot of time in different parts of the world, but I'm really curious to know where you grew up and what was life like for you as a child? So, first of all, thanks for having me on the show. And uh, where did I grow up? Well, I kind of say I'm still growing up. I've changed countries 15 times in my life and I've changed homes 34 times. I'm 56 years old, so you can do the maths. And so the, the curious thing is I was actually born in Belgium. Then we lived in France. Then we went to s live in London when I'm five years old. And at that point, I started going to school in England. My parents leave England and, keep, and I stay in boarding school in England. And uh, so my life was essentially half turns with friends the shorter holidays with my father in Paris, and then the summer holidays with my mum in Philadelphia. And, and that's sort of how I lived life until I was 18. Yeah, and, then, um, and then I went to the United States and did my university. So how was life like for me as a child? 
well, it was always changing and uh, largely brought up around a boarding school environment and sports. And um, yeah, and all, I'd like to say almost seeing out the old days of boarding school, the traditional beating, uh, fagging elements that you can see in films around the, the sort of the ghastly versions of boarding school. I, I was there as they wound down in all cases. It's kind of fascinating, right? So you, you've got these experiences that are always changing, um, different influences from living in different parts of the world. And, you know, you talk about there of having kind of this life where you're in boarding school, where your influences and your role models are very different to, say, your younger years and then also your holidays where you're with your family. So for you, did you did you feel like you had a real strong person that was a great role model or support there for you during kind of those teenage years or, or was it multiple people? How did that work for you? So I, I, I sought, I sought out father figures without doubt. And it, it, at the first boarding school I went to, which is in Dorset, Southern England, it's on the coast, 90 boys, the, the, the loos were called cross courts because you had to go outside, cross the courts to get to the loos, which are outdoors. And uh, and my first headmaster was a chap called Haggard. <laughs> and the name says it all. But then he was replaced midway through by a younger guy called Patrick Jordan, who sadly only recently died. But he became my father figure up until I was 13. And, and the reason is because he loved rugby. I loved rugby. We, we could talk about certain topics I felt that he was a sort of my yeah big uncle then uh, when I went to Eton uh, my housemaster was a chap called John Peake and he was absolutely fundamental in my upbringing he was someone who I felt was entirely himself all the time that was my feeling of course you know I don't know for a fact but he was also a history teacher tremendous athlete and and he, he just had natural enthusiasm. So he made you feel great. He also knew how to condition you and discipline you. Uh, so he was always fair, firm, full-on personality. And yeah, John Peake, um, he also unfortunately has passed, but I, I refer to him actually on the first page of my new book. Such was the influence that he was on my life. So you talk there a little bit around genuine and authenticity, which is obviously what a lot of around your new book as well. And we'll dive into that a bit later on. But you talk about there, you felt like he was genuine. You know, what, what sort of things stood out for you that were like this person I can really connect with because they actually are authentically themselves. They're not trying to be someone else. So I, I don't know. This is the story that the little mentor tells himself. When John would laugh, he laughed with his whole self. It was a, a moving, contagious laugh that, that wasn't afraid of expressing himself. When he got angry, he got very angry and his head would go all red. So what I, what I feel is that he was truly expressing himself and wasn't afraid of you know, showing his sense of humor wasn't afraid of showing his anger 
because today we have to be politically correct and everything needs to be sort of countenanced and oh my gosh you might insult people or you you might do the wrong thing god forbid he wasn't that way he he was such a genuine article and then i mean he also was really good mm. you know so that helps when you can also have a foundation of being an extraordinary oarsman and a, a fantastic footballer he was he we had a game called the the field game which he was just a dominant force on and to wit in his years 15 years as a housemaster our house was inevitably either the number one or number two of the 26 houses in sports. And, and you don't do that just by recruiting great people. You do that by knowing how to lead from the front. And he would drive us with this enthusiasm. He was a genuine article leader. Mm. And, and, you know, for yourself in those younger years, did you find yourself uh, a leader or more of a follower uh, during those times? Hmm. I think there are times when I had moments of leadership. Uh, I can I can recall a couple where I was captain of a team. Uh, that this you know was a a real feeling of of pride when you're nominated to be the captain of the team. I also recall doing my first ever large scale speech, Craig. Um, I was uh, 16 years old, and uh, the upper forms would have a thing called school hall. And so 500 people would congregate there and uh, they would have, uh, they would allow for uh, occasionally students to make the speech as opposed to you bringing in professor this and that to speak about this and that topic. So <laughs> one morning I got up and I spoke for 10 minutes about a rock and roll band that nobody had ever heard of. And, and generally speaking, if you're you know, born after 1990, you won't know who they are because the lead singer died in 1995. Anyway, that was what that's my first experience. And I had a phonograph where I, I put on an old vinyl record and that was part of my 10 minute speech. I needed them to hear. And that was, you know, how, you know, back in those days, it's not like you could plug into some kind of easy system to, you know, put your CD in or plug into Spotify. I had to get the photograph in my hands, nervous, putting the little needle down on the phone, on the vinyl and, and telling the story. I was so passionate about it. Still am today, uh, all these years later. But that's, that was uh, my first time. You know, I feel that that's an element of leadership where you are telling these, this group of 500 for the first time in their lives about something that could potentially change some of their lives, hopefully for the better. And I'm very curious here, and I'm sure the listeners will be as well. Um, you, you know, what was the band and and what was the key message out of that speech that, and the reason why you used uh, that song or, or a song from, from the band? All right. Well, so I can't say that I said this at that time because I think I wasn't quite with it. You know, I'm, I was a 16-year-old zitty boy kind of thing. Uh, the, 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 the band is a philosophy unto itself. It's a philosophy of life. And, and this is what I believe today. I, I didn't say it at the time. What I, what I said at the time was that they are a different kind of band. And what's fascinating about them is that they had, and this is, we're talking 1980 when I said, made the speech. 
they had a method of music, their business model, which was completely contrary to the music model at that time. And, and the basic music model was that they believed that the money would come from touring concerts and that it didn't give a rat's ass about vinyls, which the record labels wanted them to sell. They made them by obligation. They never touted them. They didn't bother going on radio to do much about that. What they did is that they wanted everybody to come to their concerts. Why? Because they were unique experiences. They played 2,317 concerts wow. up until 1995, which meant on average 78 shows a year. They were called shows, but we like to call them experiences. And, and because they were experiences, you kept on wanting to come back to see them again. Craig, I'm, you know, uh, your age, you, you probably uh, could have gone to see uh, a, a group like Pink Floyd or, or the Rolling Stones. And, and when you go see them, they're phenomenal performers. But if you go see them the next night, it's the same set. It's the same performance done beautifully, well-performed. And the third night and the fourth night and so on with very little variation. Uh, for having seen those two bands plenty of times myself. This band would play for five hours and never two nights the same. Never the same set. If you went five nights in a row, you might hear one song twice. But if they played it twice, they played it differently. So this is what this is the, the first thing. And then the name of the band and the philosophy. And I think it, it's so apropos for the life and situation we're living in today which is once you embrace death, you live more in, in the present. And you, for one, sir, would understand this concept. So the name of the band is called The Grateful Dead. And the whole principle of it is it, you, you become more grateful when you know that you will die. Yeah, very good. And, and I just love, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here kind of listening to the way that you pulled that together as well and it shows how good you are as a storyteller that you built so much anticipation to that you weren't going to give away the the title of the band which i i just found fasc fascinating and it's such a clever thing uh, to be able to do you've spent a lot of time researching history in your family and you know, can you give us a bit of an insight into your grandparents and then what evolved from that um, as, you, as you got further down in your, in your life? So this is a, thank you for the question. And, and it's, a, it's a fairly dense topic. So I'm named after my grandfather on my father's side. I only knew one of my grandparents all the three died, the other three died before I was born, two by suicide. And having been named after my grandfather, you would have thought that the, the numbskull youngster would have, oh, I'd like to know about the person I was named after. But no, I was far too impressed by myself probably and, and interested in my own life that I didn't happen. And so I went to Yale and went to Wall Street and, and, and then I, I uh, bought a part of a company in Washington, DC. And I got a ring, a telephone call 
And uh, so I'm sitting in my big swinging office thinking, you know, this is it. And, uh, oh, Minter, there's a call for you. Oh, great. I take the call. Hi, this is Minter Dial. And the woman on the other end of the phone is from the South in the United States. I'm in Washington, D.C. And uh, she says, hi, could I, could I speak to Minter Dial? I said, well, this is he. And by the way, Craig, there isn't another Minter Dial that I know of. Okay. And uh, that's the benefit of having a weird name. And uh, says, hi, this is he. Really? Y yes. Yeah, 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 yes. It's Nathaniel Minterdial. Oh, my God. I've been looking for you for years. Uh, well, great. Now, now you have me. What, what were you looking for me for? No, no, no. But it, it's not really you. Uh, yes, it is. But you sound young as well. I, I checked. I checked my body hairs. I the wrinkles in my face. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm 27 years old. I'm, I'm not young. And uh, I said, no, 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 but I wanted to invite you to your 55th school reunion. Oh, uh oh. Anyway, she was looking for her grandfather. Wow. And so all that, that just, that was the, the eye opener moment where I actually figured out that this other person existed. And, uh, and essentially what had happened and continues to happen for many years after that particular telephone call is that my father never spoke about his father. It was a, a poor territory, a, a, a zone of sadness, because his father, of course, never came back. Last time he saw his father was when he was two and was killed as a prisoner of war of the Japanese in the Philippines. And, and he never opened up that story. It was not just not part of his gestalt. It was a black box. And, and so the, I, what I went on was a journey that took 10 years where I, I went everywhere I could in the world, Japan, Philippines, Australia, of course, and, and uh, England to, and obviously all over the United States to meet prisoners of war from his time who were still alive, who knew him, who could tell me about him. And I met 130 such people who also knew some of them, my grandmother, who was an actress in LA uh, at the time. And, um, and I crafted this story. I, I, I put back together, pieced together his 33 years of his life. And I wanted to share this with my father, but my father wasn't really open to it, wasn't really interested in it. And, uh, and it, it took a, a monumental life-changing event for me to be able to just lean in and tell my father who his father was and who his mother was, how and why they died and, and everything that I knew. And the, that event, Craig, was the, a dinner in New York. My father and I, he, he lived in Europe at this point. I was living in Manhattan. This is, this is in 19, this is in, sorry, <laughs> I have to remember the year. It was the year 2001. And he was coming to the United States for a five-day tour. And he had one dinner date for us, which was the 10th of September. And we had a dinner, which was just like every other dinner that I'd had with him, where we talked about the New York Yankees, the weather, my job running Redken, you know, two kids, by the way, he met his grandchildren. And um, yeah. And then the next day his plane was canceled, along with a few other things that happened. And he had to come back for dinner. So you have to imagine Manhattan 
is a is a peculiar place. I, I saw the whole thing happen in front of my eyes. I had a corner office that overlooked the Twin Towers. And I saw the second airplane fly all the way down. I watched, I tracked it, fly all the way down and in. So we're living a kind of a granular, gritty experience in Manhattan. The smell, I'm, I have four friends who are missing. And, and my father comes back for dinner. And it's in that, at that time, that I felt the compulsion to tell my father the story of who his father was and who his mother was. And my father, I would say, overnight morphed from the man who didn't want to talk about his father to the man who started to understand who he himself was. And that Sunday called on me. And, and since that Sunday, has not called me every week. Wow. Well, it's incredible how, you know, you talked about life-changing events there that, you know, bring people together to, to realize that family is important, that, you know, understanding the past is, is a huge part of who you are. Um, and, you know, this is, you know, obviously a lot of emotions here right now is just listening to you talk about that and obviously an incredible time in life as well. You're talking about 9-11 happening, which is, I can't imagine what it was even like to be in Manhattan at that time and, and to even see things unfold at that point. But to have your dad experience the understanding of what his past was about must have been absolutely um a joy for you in a way, but I'm sure opened up a whole lot of new things that you weren't aware of as well. Mm. Well, he started then telling me some of the things that he recalled, his experiences as a, up to being a teenager. And then he basically left America right after university and never moved back. And so that's thanks to that. I became a European and, and I'd lived in Belgium and you know, France and England and so on. Um, and, uh, and in any event, the, that, that was a fulcrum moment for me, for my family experience, understanding my father, having him understand himself, presumably better is the way I like to say it. I think he would say the same thing, but I'm not sure. <laughs> And, and then also, Craig, importantly, it, it, it made me wake up to doing things that are important. Because if I only have a few days left, because I really, it, it was one of the f first times I've had a few uh, before and then since, but that really said, oh my God, life is short. When you have friends who are ripped out from your group by an unexpected event, even a heart attack like that, it feels like a, a real reveille. And, and for me, this was, there was obviously the sort of the geopolitical story going on, which meant and felt even more treacherous and un, un, unfortunate. But it really made me think about what am I doing selling shampoos? How is the world going to be better off by selling shampoos? And, and the answer is that there was a beautiful and is a beautiful thing underneath that. And just like if you're a ball bearing manufacturer, there is also a great purpose to your company. 
The question is, are you aware of it? And are you leaning into it and making it come alive at least a bit every day? And that's what I think purpose needs to be. And, and that was the idea of from that day onwards, I, I really felt a mission, missionary need to do things that were meaningful. Even if that meant that I was doing different things, there, there always had to be something meaningful about that. And, and more and more I got into it, more and more it was important that it was meaningful and a contribution to the rest of the world, not just to me. Mm. Do you think leaders can have great impact in their companies and in what they do without having meaning? Or is it just something that has to be there for them to truly transform or create something really special? So there's a scale on what is meaningful. And, and, and people attribute meaning differently, naturally. So I performed and I got my company to grow double digit growth or double the industry standard for 10 years in a row. And I'm gonna attribute meaning to that. And usually that translates into a, a larger swank car, a second country home and, and other extrinsic elements alongside with all the accolades that are gonna happen in the Financial Times and you know, so-and-so comma CEO, comma, one of the best leaders ever. Yeah, and so that can be meaningful to some people. And, 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 and fine, that we need performance because if you don't perform, you're, you're nowhere. Yet, the interesting thing is, do you find a way to make more meaning for everybody in the company, everybody who's contributing, the ecosystems around it, and, and really, for me, that's what real leadership is, is when it feels meaningful for everybody, where you're just as happy to have somebody do double what you did because they're growing, growing something for a greater cause, a greater benefit. If it's all about me, 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 and lots of me's, sort of like a consultancy where you have everybody has their own P&L, that world is hard to, to, to craft and create an uber meaning that lifts everybody up. So you can still do it as a consultancy. You can do it as any financial services because each of them serves a purpose. But do you lean into it? Do you make it come alive? And do you make it feel real? And, and that challenge, that's the challenge, that's for me the real challenge of leaders. You can find meaning. I mean, if I explain to a person, hey, listen, John, I'd like you to do this thing for me. And this is why it's important, because if you can uh, bring these photocopies to this meeting, I I'm meeting with the future CEO of whatever, biggest competitor, biggest client. And then you, you explain why you're doing photocopies. And so now this photocopies has meaning. So there's sort of this scale of meaningfulness. And I think for me, the, the, the encouragement I have is always look to add more meaningfulness. Don't seek mother to reason us all the time. That's, that's not relevant. It's great and necessary to have some uber meaning, uber purpose, but make things meaningful all throughout your day. Whether it's like listening to your favorite song, that's meaningful to me because I remember the first time, by the way, the vinyl that I played, the song that I played was a song called Ripple, my favorite song by the Grateful Dead tap into that. So whenever I listen, I, I listen to Ripple, I can remember my the young minter listening to Ripple. So at small micro levels, 
up to explaining why you're asking people to do stuff and try to make everybody feel that they are contributing to the bigger purpose throughout the day. That's in installing meaningfulness into your organization. I love the way that you beautifully articulated your uh, perspective on meaningfulness and, and purpose, which I think is fantastic because quite often people will just talk a, at a really, really high level, which for a lot of people is somewhat feels like out of their scope of what they can achieve or what they can really understand. So you make it a lot, uh, bring it down that level so people can grasp it, which I think is fantastic. You had a 16-year international career at L'Oreal, um, which is a you know, especially in this day and age, is a long period of time. Back then it probably wasn't. But if it's a long point of being involved in one company. And, and obviously you had different roles and in different parts of the world as well. For you, how did you first end up with a job at L'Oreal to start with? So I went to INSEAD Business School in Fontainebleau. And I went there very specifically for two reasons. Uh, one is that I, I wanted to move back to Europe. And I was in the United States and I, 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 the small stories, my company that I was in Washington there went completely belly up, I, flaming belly up with the feds closing us down. It was a ugly, ugly ending. Then I, I moved back to my mom's place in Philadelphia. And I lived with her for the first time since I was seven years old, a 20 year, 20 year interval. And I uh, ended up working at the Philadelphia Zoo as a temp, a secretary. And, uh, and at that time, I, I also picked up my tennis racket again and started coaching tennis again. And, um, and I wrote a book, a novel. And, and I was like, ah. so I decided I had to go, I wanted to clean things up a little bit. And after a year of that, I, I said, I need to move back to Europe. That's where I feel I'm at home. And the second thing is I wanted to understand this thing called do, 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 no, uh, marketing. What on earth is marketing? Because I had been vice president of marketing at DLJ, Donaldson, Lufkin and Generat. I had been doing marketing for my travel agency for musicians. I'd been contributing to marketing for the zoo, but I felt like I just didn't know what it was. Anyway, so I went to INSEAD and for 10 months, a glorious time at Fontainebleau in France. And I targeted two companies because they seem to be the best at marketing. One was Louis Vuitton Moet Tennessee, LVMH, and the other one was L'Oreal. And so I was completely obsessed with knowing everything about each of these companies. And I wrote them extremely well-crafted, well, well, I mean, because I spent a lot of time on them, specific messages to the heads of HR for both companies. L'Oreal called me up interviewed me and hired me before LVMH replied. Wow. And, and that is how I got my job. And by the way, the trick, the reason why I got hired, because they had, you know, they had lots of other people applying, was that I spent a day in a hairdressing salon as a numbskull MBA. Just, well, they, they sell to hairdressers. Gosh, I had no idea. What's it like to be a hairdresser? You know, all I'd done is got my hair cut, bush, you know, basically, I, or of course, I used to wear long hair, by the way, Craig. But um, yeah, so I, I learned about the life of a hairdresser. So when I went into the interview, I wasn't just sort of a theoretical consultant. I was like, oh, gosh, it, 
it's really important to have creams for your hands because if you're washing your hands, you're washing hair all the time, your hands actually get chaffed and chafed. You know, so uh, that, anyway, little details like that made them aware that I was committed to the idea. Yeah, and, and obviously, you know, during that time, L'Oreal was growing as well as you're growing in three different roles. For you, what was, how would you describe the leadership from L'Oreal globally during that Ooh. time? Right. So the CEO was a, was a Welshman um, and he went to INSEAD, actually. He was one of the other, we were very few that went to INSEAD. It was mostly two other schools where the sort of the senior management was from, Ashesi and Isaac. And the funny thing is he used to, we used to always speak in French together. So, you know, Welshman and, and whatever I am speaking French. And he used to call me Dial instead of Dial, which I always sound peculiar. You know, because if you're English, you know, dial, dial a soap, dial a telephone. No, I was dial to him, even when we spoke English. And, um, and the leadership was of a specific style. And I think that that specific style still exists, which is extremely high exigency. Uh, I would call it, certainly in the time that I there, I, I felt it was really a, a much more of a command and control kind of facet where every leader had to know all the details, therefore had to micromanage in order to be able to answer, how is it that the bottom of this packaging has a 250 and that one has a 252? Well, the reason for that, sir, is, and, and you, even if I was running the big company, I was expected to know that kind of detail. And uh, we were very influential you, you had to be influential with your network, especially important when you moved overseas to be able to coordinate with the people in headquarters who were crafting the new product launches and doing all that. So it's really a matrix, a matrix organization. It's better in French, matriciel uh, organization where there's always zones and spheres and, and you're never really clear who's what doing when, when or where. And, um, and then I would add that you also had to be buttoned down on financials. So good, usually we would say it was very much a marketing organization. You had to be very strong on financials. And the last thing is a little bit more, let's say less prosaic, which is that the character we like to ascribe to was both poet and peasant. And and I and I and I I really enjoyed that, and I that really drew me into L'Oreal. That it should be a reality is a different story, but there was there were birds of a feather where you were both poet, creative, expansive, and peasant, hardworking. Roll your sleeves up and do the shit. So when you look back at that time, you. What aspect of that had the greatest influence on who you are as a leader now? Hmm. So, all right, two things. One is positive, one is negative. On the positive side with L'Oreal, if you're good, you end up having this extraordinary diverse set of experiences and you move around and Maybe on the extrinsic level, you really feel like you're learning a lot. You're, you're, I mean, I internally I was learning it, but this is because I get these titles and I'm moving around and I'm sort of getting the extrinsic, you know, big head pop. 
but within that, I, I'm having these extraordinary experiences working with teams in different languages. And, and I, I just love that. And I thought that, that there's an operational element to it. There's the diversity of experiences. And, and I think that really crafted me because when you do shit, it matters. If you're a consultant that just tells people what to do, then it's a different story. It, I really lived it. I lived the crashes, the, the miseries, the, the ups and downs and so on. On the other side, I, I felt that there was a uniformity to the L'Oreal way. Let's call it a culture that didn't really like moving out of bounds. It was highly crafted. I, I learned a lot, but then there wasn't much scope for deviation. And if you can imagine, when I landed, I was on the executive committee of the professional products division, which is the one that sells to hairdressers. At the end, for three years, I, and I exaggerate a tiny bit, but not much, was diversity. Of course, you don't see me because you're only listening to this, listeners, but I'm a white male. And it, it's a, a kind of a curious idea to think of me as diversity. The rest were all French, male, from two schools, and there, although there was one woman, uh, and then eventually a second. But at the time, it was like I, I and she were the diversity. She was Italian by origin. It's fascinating when you think of L'Oreal as this global um, business that is based more around females than males, but it's the people leading it are predominantly male. Uh, which is fascinating. It, things have changed a little bit since then, but at the time, the data point was in 2009, uh, roughly 93%, I think it was 93% was calculated, of all products, the decision is made by women, and 92% of the senior leaders, we had the cadre dirigeant, so were, were men. Yeah, that's interesting. You, you made me think about something going back to interview I did with Alvin Hugh, which you obviously you know, and he talked, sure. he talked about the confrontation room, mm. which I, I found absolutely fascinating. Uh, and so for those listening, and, and maybe you can explain this a little bit better, it, it's a place where you go with ideas and people kind of, because um, conf confrontation in French is a little bit different to how it's um, described in English, but it's a place where you'll bring that idea in or you'll bring in some uh, proposal and then it is kind of everyone has their their say about it, like everyone approaches it from different angles. Is that right? Is that what happens? A hundred percent. And I, I had several experiences in La Salle de la Confrontation, Salle de Confrontation, and it's really gladiatorial because generally speaking, you are in the middle of this pit you're lower than everybody else that's sitting around you. And, and the CEO sits in one space. So you generally eyeball him. And, and yet you kind of know that you have people piercing into your side all the time because they want your job or they are competing for the next job. And so that's where it really becomes a sort of a, a vicious circle where you're being pronged and prodded to look at the validity of your idea, your concept. What well, have you thought about this? Well, why do you say that? 
and how is this going to solve this? And you're on your feet and you have to have thought about all this because if you haven't, it shows up. It's a very microscopic moment where even the, the level of confidence you have in the way that you answer is part of the battle and the facility with which you have the numbers. Well, you said for this product line, uh, how much is it of total? Uh, it's 11.8%. All right, you said 11.8%. How much is that going to grow? Uh, you have to go through your bank of registers, uh, 5%. Well, then how on earth are you going to do 8%? If it's 11.5, and you're just ja, ja, ja. And this is only one small sliver of the whole business. And, and that's the kind of jousting that would go on in the salle de confrontation. Yet, as I said at the very beginning, you also had your sort of presentation moment. And so there would be these sort of highly theatrical moments where you're seducing everybody into why these countries or whatever type of meeting it is should invest in my brand. And so this is internal competition. Every country roughly has anywhere between, let's say, 30 and 50 brands that are running and they, these then require resources and how do you battle for them? So in this situation, when I was running Redken, I would go in there and I had to battle to get people who are running countries with all these, the whole big portfolios of brands to over-invest in my brand because that's how I win. If they mm -hmm. give the right people and enough material and understand the direction of my brand, then they're gonna, oh, they're gonna spend some time thinking about that and hopefully help it forward. Of course, other times though, the confrontation goes the other way and they just, they don't want Minter. They don't, they don't want my brand to succeed because they don't feel like it's right. Fascinating battle. Fascinating battle. You've, you've produced uh, four books and, and maybe a fifth one because you talked about a novel as well, which I don't think was part of the four that I'm, that I was aware of. Not published, not published. Not published. Okay, there we go. Uh, but you've recently launched a new book called You Lead. Why, when there are so many leadership books out there, did you decide to put out a new book right now called You Lead? Well, yes, the problem is there have been a few leadership books in the past. And so it felt like a daunting task to try to provide something new. Yet I have one idea, which is basically, I feel like leadership is still broken. Employee motivation is still hideously low. And, and so much uh, of so many companies, people leave because my boss was not, didn't, I didn't like my boss. That environment, the culture, the, the leadership principles, uh, continues to be broken. And so what, what is you lead? You lead is an attempt to say, and I think it's obviously something that you will, will resonate with you, Craig, which is you lead yourself. You are the CEO of yourself to use an expression you might use. And, and I do believe there's an energy component to it, just like you say. Yet I, I feel like we have still today too many people going into the corporate space, going to work remotely or, or not, by the way, of course, with this figurative tie on. 
And, and I think what's necessary is to bring the tie-dye in. So uh, you all guys who aren't, you're listening to this, you, you don't see, but I'm actually, actually not even figuratively, metaphorically, I am wearing a tie-dye. And, and the idea is be tie and tie-dye at work. Bring your whole self to work. I don't mean bring in all of the nitty gritty details of your personal lives, because of course you have private stuff, intimate stuff, and that must remain confidential. That's your secret garden and, and treasure your secret garden. That's fine. Embrace your shadow, but bring your whole self to work. And, and it's not an easy thing to do. It takes courage to be able to release your whole self at work, especially when you don't feel the confidence or you think this is the only way that the company goes because cultures have a way of crushing your, your individuality. So as the CEO, the ambition is in this book to, to give permission and show through the different governance models, just how to bring and how much to bring of yourself to work. It's, it's an interesting, it's, it's a very interesting talk and very, very important. And the whole thing around being genuine, being authentic. And, you know, you're talking about then around keeping some in your secret garden and then that which you bring to yourself in, in the workspace. How do people kind of understand what is appropriate and what isn't? And there's a... There's a consultant's uh, answer that depends. I inevitably, this depends. You, you don't want to bring something which you're uncomfortable with because that sort of looks uncomfortable and awkward. Uh, you, you can't just sort of overnight it. All right, all right well, I'm going to get rid of the tie and I'm going to wear a tie-dye tomorrow. That, I mean, I suppose maybe you can do that if you're the CEO, but you need to bring people along with you. In, the, in your journey. And ideally you start that way, but the reality is most people are where they are and they're just deciding. So the, the first thing you need to do is, is actually lean in on who you are and spend some time with yourself. Because that's the issue, Craig. We don't spend the time to think about ourselves. We are rush, rush, rush. We're programmed to do, 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 and perform, perform, perform. If you just can sit back and and give yourself the gift of thinking about who you are and who you want to be. That's where it all begins because self-awareness is the key that unopens the door. And so the, the more you're able to understand your full self, where are your foibles, your imperfections, what is your shadow? Then you can start to figure out what is the limitation and where am I going, how far along the line am I going to go in bringing my whole self to work? Until then, it's just a facade. It's a mask to use an expression we use these days. And, and, and you need to be aware of who, what is beyond, behind the mask before you can take it off. So that's maybe easier said than done. You know, for those that have the shield up, who, who put the barrier up there, who've got the mask on, how, how can they actually start to become a little bit more self-aware? What, what are some strategies or ways that they can start to delve into that aspect? 
So I have a whole methodology that I, I, I think hopefully is concrete and anybody who's listening can actually go out and do. And it, it revolves around, obviously, let's say you have to bring yourself into this exercise, just be prepared to really dig in and introspect. And the exercise is the following one. Think of a much future you, Craig. So I don't know how old you are, but let's go with 60 years old, because I'm thinking that's a, a good bit off for you. That's, oh, fuck, I don't know who I'm going to, that's a long way off, right? I want it to be a long way off. And then imagine, Craig, you're going to celebrate your 60th birthday. And, and you're going to invite five people to your birthday. And where are you? What are you doing? That's interesting to create that image. And then as you're sitting down and, and the cake's brought out with 60 candles on it burning still, you blow them out and then everybody at the table says, hey, Craig, cheers to you. And each of these five people say, hey, Craig, happy birthday, mate, or happy birthday, son, or happy birthday, dad, or who, you have to choose who these five people are. And that's part of the strategy. And then you, then they will each say, two sentences or three sentences that describe who you are. Craig, happy birthday. This is why I love you. Because you're the kind of guy. And, and the dot, dot, dot is what you need to write. So pick five people, have them describe who you are, not what you did, but who you are. And then within those, you get the raw material to describe who you want to be. And, and naturally, Craig, this is a process, right? And you are always going to bring your whole experience to that very moment where you're doing the exercise. That's part of it. But the opportunity here is to just figure out who you want to be and then just strive towards that. The more you are aware of the, the gap between the bee you want to be and the man or person that you are today, then the, that self-awareness will help you because it could be unrealistic. And then you need to do a self-check because, but this is a gift, this whole idea, spending time on yourself, considering those five people, writing down what those five people would say, and then synthesizing those five times two or three sentences into one sentence, which focuses on who you are. And then, and then what you need to do is start deciding everything. How am I going to be that person? Because then you do need to do stuff. I mean, I articulated it a little bit more in the book, the whole news model, where you also include your values, what's stopping you from becoming the person you want to become. And then you think of the how. But anyway, that's, that's the uh, a shortish answer but with a concrete exercise for everybody to do. And it's brilliant and I like it. Uh, it's when people are just kind of living their life and going through a lot of the things as they see themselves in success is a lot of materialistic and external things. Until, and, and the Grateful Dead starts popping into my mind now, until you actually start looking at what do you want to be remembered for? What are people going to write on your tombstone? What are going to people say eulogy? 
And people kind of, when you first ask people to think about something like that, they kind of look at you strange and kind of laugh at you going, oh, it's a waste of time. But it's at that point, then they start to talk about things that are intrinsic and, mm -hmm. and aren't materialistic anymore. And that's where the values come up and that's where um, the behaviors, et cetera, as well. So yeah, I like the approach. It's really, really, really exciting. And I think uh, you'll do very well with that. What was the trigger for you to write You Lead? All right, so uh, I, I tend, unfortunately, to have stories uh, for these things. Uh, the, I, have, I feel like my life has just been one long set of stories. But actually, this book, Craig, I started writing in 2014. That was seven years ago. And um, I went off to Croatia and I spent 10 days and I wrote 30,000 words. And this was going to be the book of my life. I didn't mean it as a biography or an autobiography. I mean it as a, a book of life. And it was going to be about the full experience because you need to be full. It, when you're spending 60 hours at work, that's 60 hours of your life. It's not 60 hours at work. So it needs to be this full understanding of life. That's what I meant by this. And I had this vision of this book at that time. And then I got this random Skype message. Hey, Minter, it's Josh. Do you remember me? Uh, no, no. Yeah, we met 13 years ago. Uh, help me. Well, we met in an Irish pub on a Tuesday afternoon. And I was 23 years Oh, you were the 23. Oh, yeah, I remember. You were the 23 year old film student I met in an Irish pub at three o'clock on the Tuesday, 11th of September, 2001. Yep. I remember you, Josh. What on earth are you doing contacting me? Hey, Minter, I'm a 37 year old. I've made three feature length films. I want to do your film. What do you mean you want to do my film? Yeah, you remember you told me that story. You had met your father the night before and, and you told me the story of your guy. I want to make that film happen. Well, what does that mean? Well, let's talk. Anyway, I put my book, You Lead, the, the, the embryonic You Lead, on the side. And for two years, I dove, delved into making my documentary film and writing the book about my grandfather and talk about leaning into being legacy stuff. This was one of the sepulchral elements of my legacy. And so <laughs> that book, that was the first one. And believe it or not, Craig, I had three more bazooka type experiences like that, that took me off writing you lead. Three more bazooka, same level, huge explosions in my life that because uh, I wrote another 30,000 words when I finished you, uh, the, the Last String Home. And then another thing happened, my editor died. I mean, just stuff kept on happening. And then I handed in my manuscript for You Lead with great excitement on the 7th of March, 2020. <laughs> well, and then, and then another bazooka happened in the form of Kogan furloughing all its staff and 
London going into full-on clampdown lockdown. And for four months, I didn't have a word from Kogan. Came out and they said, oh, we're back in business. Pushed the launch back. And that's how ULEAD came around. Yeah, fantastic. Uh, which is really exciting. And I look forward to reading it too, actually. It's, um, you, you know, people have to be able to influence themselves before they can influence others. And oh, yeah. So I'm just really fascinated to see the insights on it as well. One of the things, Craig, is, is when you write a thing, is how much of that is you? Because it's true, you put words on a paper. Well, you ought to just got it. You just got to do that. And, and, and where that really rammed home for me was writing a book on empathy, which was my last book. And, and so it happens, Craig, in my family, someone says, well, papa or a mentor, that wasn't being very empathic of you, was it, Mr. Empathy? Huh. And, and so I, I, I do really feel that this book is, has been the way I've led my life with lots of warts and, and imperfections along the way. But I, I, I really do try to lead my life in the way that I've written it, which makes hopefully a more readable, uh, accessible journey, because really we all are imperfect. Yeah, we've got to try to perfect those imperfections, don't we? That's right. Or, or at least make them better, improve them. I don't like to go for perfection. Yeah. I, I really I think that was one of the big faults of L'Oreal, always striving for perfection. Uh, companies do it. It's a very engineer kind of thing. If you're an engineer and you're making a bridge, better make it perfectly. Okay, get it. But for the rest, life is messy. And, and don't strive for perfection. It's, it's in a mirage. And more like embrace the messiness, embrace the chaos, allow for dirt under your fingers, because that's life. Certainly is. <laughs> it makes it so much fun as well. We all know smart people have great answers, but the most successful people ask great questions. Mm. When was the last time you did something for the first time? Huh. When was the last time that I did something for the first time? Yikes. Great question, as they say, Craig. Um, hmm. Well, I, I did write a eulogy for myself. Uh, and uh, that was about three years ago. Because um, I also wrote a religion. I wanted to create a religion. Had, I, I, I have these thoughts sometimes, Craig, where I say, what have I not thought about? What have I not done? And uh, about six years ago, I had I came up with the idea that I've never created a religion. Well, I better do that. And uh, I, I, I then three years ago, I knew I wrote my eulogy, which was a uh, kind of an act. Um, otherwise, smaller things, um, you know, <laughs> uh, opening up a 1996 bottle of Chateau Ikem. Very nice. Uh, that that when it when it you know it's a, it was a, a mini bottle, five hundred and fifty euros, for uh, nineteen ninety six Chateau Ikem, that that was quite a fun moment, a ceremonial, um, e extrinsic fun really. In the end of the day, 
There you go. There's a couple of answers. It sounds like I've done, haven't done much new recently. I think I could uh, have a whole podcast interview with you around how you created your own religion. Um, <laughs> it sounds fascinating to me. Oh, oh, and by the way, energy is the core concept. Ooh, even better, even better. All right, that's for another day. What is the one question that you would love to solve? All right, the one question I would love to solve. How do you render or, or garner energy all the time? And I, I have moments where I, I get into energy and the flow, but it, it seems so elusive. And, and that sort of like, uh, for example, I, I'm a rackets player. I was a tennis coach. I, I play a lot. Of, I've played 18 different racket sports. And there are times when you are playing and everything is flowing. There's a sort of a gorgeousness to that experience. When you're in a conversation and you're on a high, there's that sort of energy coming back into you as you're having these experiences. So yeah, what I'd like to do is to be able to tap into that energy more frequently and help others tap into it for them more frequently. Oh, very nice. For you, what is your definition of living an extraordinary life? Having people in my life and having extraordinary experiences. So seeking out to do new things, learn, I'm, I'm learning a new language. I'm currently, um, I, yeah, that, that for me, having extraordinary moments, living stories that are extraordinary, doing things that are different uh, pretty much every day. I, I, we're all creatures of habit, but I strive to include new experiences constantly in my life, which can include listening to new music. I play guitar and I've probably played, oh, I don't know, 2000 different songs in my life. None of them well, but I'm, I'm always trying out new songs. Uh, I, what, what, what leg did I put into my trousers yesterday? Let's put the diff, the other leg in today. Finding ways just keep me a little bit off kilter. And I kind of want to do that with other people. So I like to surround myself with other people who are like-minded. I'll tell you one last thing, Craig. Um, and, and, and it's one of my new books that I, I am considering for the future, which is um, dinner parties. How can we reinvent dinner parties? I wanna move away from those stultifying dinner parties where all we're talking about is what we do for a living, how great our kids are, and maybe we talk about the sports team's performance. <sighs> I yawn. How can we have fantastic dinner parties where each one of them is a, an experience, an unforgettable experience? And that's something I strive to do with my wife. I've done 200 of these dinner parties with her. And each time we strove to have a unique experience, we think about the guests, we think about a theme, and then we have these moments where we're striving to have extraordinary conversations. Yeah, it's... Uh, I love that. And, and my wife and I, uh, not last year, the year before, we would go out every Sunday. We would choose a completely different restaurant or cafe that we had never, ever been to before. 
and then we would go in there and we would always order no, sorry instead of ordering we would always ask the the waiter what do you think that i would like to eat today what do you think that i would but, like to drink today and then from there then we would have really unique conversations um because sweet. the experience was shifted my son has one which i've learned from him which is all right what is the least ordered item on your menu <laughs> and uh, that's what i'll have and talk about being a little ballsy and brazen, right? You know, as opposed to just taking the old hamburger and, f and fries or whatever. He goes for the, the lowest hanging, or the, the highest hanging fruit, actually. I suppose that's what it is, the yeah. highest hanging fruit. Yeah, brilliant. Minta, uh, been lots of great insights there today and, and really uh, unique experiences. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners would love to know more about you. So how can people learn more about what you do and what is the best way for people to connect with you? That's very kind. Thank you for asking, Craig. So I have this whacked out name that apparently someone else had in life, um, which gives me a great URL and Google friendly feed, minterdial.com, where I write pretty much two articles a week since 2006. And uh, I do my podcast, as you said at the very beginning, Minter Dialogue, which is available on all podcast hosts. A uh, fun way I, I like, like you to have um, interesting guests on. And uh, I tweet, and, and my sort of social handle is usually M-D-I-A-L, M-Dial. And yeah, that's, I'm, I'm sort of findable. Google and is friendly with me. And, um, and I, of course, you can go on a, a, I think there's a site called, begins with an A, I'm a, um, uh, something like that, uh, where you can find my books. Um, it's also available on other uh, rather influential or good um, e-commerce sites. I, I want to pull out a new one that just started in the United States called bookshop.org, which is a, uh, an online book selling company designed to help independent bookstores. And I think that's a, a lovely initiative as an author to appreciate them as well. But Amazon is generally the good place to go find these books. Oh, and my film is available on YouTube, um, the, long, the Last Ring Home, YouTube, um, uh, um, Apple, uh, what's it called? Uh, iTunes anyway, I don't remember, <laughs> Apple, whatever, uh, as well as it used to be on History Channel down under, um, but I don't know if it's still available, uh, part of Foxtel. All right, we have to check that out. Um, so we'll put those links in the show notes so people can easily find them uh, and connect with you as well. Minta, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. You know, just for me, fascinating insight into your world. Um, I'm always very encouraged when I talk to people that have lived in multiple countries because they tend to have a unique, diverse view on the world and, and tend to have some really fascinating experiences um, that I can connect with as someone who's lived in five countries and you've now set the standard for me, 15. So I've got a few more years to catch up to you, uh, which, I, which I really enjoy as well. Um, your, your insights into leadership and the way, that what, you know, the way that you look at what is an effective leader of the future and the importance of being authentic and genuine and it's not being the die all the time, but, uh, the tie all the time, but being the tie die, which I, I think is a great concept and a, something easy for people to imagine and envision. Uh, to hear your stories when, when you look at your family and how 
it was suppressed for so long, but you were able to uncover it through an uncanny conversation and then obviously a some some major uh, events that happen in the world around you know obviously 9/11 and the opportunity to really open up with your father and learn more about um, or for him to learn about the story behind his grandparents but then also for you to learn more as well uh, and then people wanting to share that with the world uh, through being in a film etc as well you are someone that serves the world and it is and it's really exciting to see that as well and you're there to help people become better and help people learn and understand things more and so i really appreciate what you're doing really grateful for everything that you are doing at the moment and I look forward to staying in touch in the future. So thank you very, very much for your time today and sharing um, from deep inside your heart, being authentic and genuine. Uh, so an all the best for a successful 2021. Craig, thank you very much. Really heartfelt thanks. Thank you for listening to a spectacular conversation with Minter Dial, You Lead the Future on the Active CEO podcast. Now, it's interesting to watch people when they start a company or they develop out a new prod, uh, product or service, that quite often they go out and seek what other people have done so, and then try and copy what those that have been successful have done before. What's important to remember is that a copy is never as good as the original. And so it's so important to be authentic and be careful not to fall down the trap of trying to copy what someone else has done before. Because all you can potentially do is maybe get close to matching them, but you never will. Because the ingredients it takes to create one product or one service or, or one company is just about impossible to replicate. And by the time you have replicated it, the competition have gone on and the world has progressed further. You know, when, I remember being a swimming coach and, and I learned this great lesson when I flew across to, from New Zealand to Australia when I was uh, in my late teens, relatively new coach. And I remember going into the big conference and I, I watched in awe as we had these amazing Olympic and world champion coaches who were just showing their entire sets and program details of what they've done with their athletes that have won Olympic gold medals. And it always stuck in my mind. And they said, I'm happy to share with you everything I've done because the art is knowing how to implement it with the people you are working with. And so unless you have that or can foster that, the program itself is useless. That program was specifically designed for one individual. So when you think about creating something, think about who you're, who you're creating it for. Who is the avatar? Who is your market? And make sure that it is designed specifically for them. It's an original. It's not a copy of something else you've seen that's been successful before. You know, so do you need some help creating your own original? If you do, then you know, please reach out to Craig at NRG, the number two, perform.com or click on the contact page of craigjohns.com.au website. And together, we can ensure that you stand out from the crowd.
Coming up in the next episode is Teresa newton Terres, And she talks about a life is a treasure hunt. Fascinating lady. You know, and, and she takes into an insight of uh, her relatives and, and someone that passed away that was very mysterious. And, and she had to pretty much go on a treasure hunt to learn all about it. And she wrote, wrote an amazing book around that. And she also delves into why people should take on the world as a treasure hunt and how it helps people find clarity. Thank you very much for listening to this uh, amazing episode with Minter Dahl. I'm Craig Johns. This is the Active CEO Podcast with Ordinary Don't Belong. Join the Active CEO movement by visiting www.nrgtoperform.com. That's N-R-G number two perform.com. Share this podcast on LinkedIn and be sure to tag in NRG to perform. Leave a review on iTunes. Drop us a line with your feedback and questions and connect with us on the NRG to perform Facebook and Instagram pages. Be sure to check out the next Active CEO podcast where the ordinary don't belong.